Hansel and Gretel were lost in a deep, dark forest, having been left there by their father and evil stepmother. When this first happened, Hansel had left a trail of stones, but this time he'd left a trail of breadcrumbs, which had been eaten by some starving undergraduates. Just when all hope was lost, however, they entered a clearing. It wasn't my fault, though. I didn't have time to pick up any stones. Well, you better think of something. It's getting dark. Wait, what's that ahead of us? Looks like some kind of house. That's no house. No, you're right. It looks like it's made out of... Are those sweets, candy canes and donuts? No, research papers. Look, the exact value of Hubble's constant. Yes, here. The exact constituents of dark matter. And why people are so interested in pulsars. The phone book for everyone on Europa. And another one for Enceladus. We could spend years here going through these papers. Well, I'm going to sit down with this paper on corona physics and why it's hotter just above the sun than on the surface. Good idea. I've got one about Type 1A supernova. It's an old paper, but it checks out. Just then, the door opened and a black cloaked figure stepped out. Ah, oh, children, you have arrived. Come inside with me. I have the solutions to many more mysteries, such as what the one question is that even Tim O'Brien cannot answer. Hang on a minute. Tim can answer any question. Not quite, young Padawan. There is one, and I shall tell you what it is inside. I'm not too sure about this. After all, we've got enough here to last us decades of publishing. It's a trap. No, it is not. Oh, oh yes, yes, it is. No, it is not. Oh, oh yes, it is. is. No, it is not. Oh, oh yes, yes, it is. Okay, we'll come inside. But only if you can explain why the CMB is anisotropic. Unfortunately for Hansel and Gretel, the dark cloaked figure had created a trap for our heroes. Once inside, Hansel was forced into a cage to be fattened up for combustion research, and Gretel was set to work helping the man's service droids clean, tidy, and write new papers. One day... Oh, Mistress Gretel, what are we to do? <whistles> I know, Argo D2. We must find a way to get Master Hansel out of there. Yes, my hands are aching from all this hard work. There aren't even any computers. Now, now, she didn't mean you. We've got to come up with a plan that will allow us to escape. I'm worried that Hansel's almost at the point where he'll be put in a stove for combustion research. You know, I have been doing things other than just getting plumper in here. Oh yeah? Like what? Well, I've been using the scraps of circuitry around here to create this. We can't judge by appearances, Argo. It's a translation circuit. It means that Argo D2 doesn't need to speak in bleeps and whistles. Come over here, Argo. There, let's try it. I'm a princess. You what? Is that what Argo's been saying this whole time? I'm a princess. I'm a princess. Oh, I think something's wrong. Let, let me take another look at that. Just then, the dark cloaked figure came into the room again. 
Ah, the boy is ready for the stove. It is time to conduct an experiment into the specific heat capacities of undergraduates. No, leave him alone. With a deft swipe of the fours, the cloaked figure swept Gretel away into a corner, made the stove blazing hot and plucked Hansel out of his cage. What will happen next? Find out after this. The Jodcast. Now that's a podcast. With James Bamber, Therese Cantwell, Mateusz Malenta, Niall McCallum, Ian MacDonald, Benjamin Shaw and Charlie Walker. The Jodcast. December 2015, Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Ben and I'm with Therese and Matt. Hello. 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 So Matt and Therese, you're both newcomers to The Jodcast. Uh, Matt, we've heard your voice before, you've done the news. Um, so Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit. You, you sit two desks down from me and even yeah, I and have no idea what you do so why yeah. don't you tell the world what it is you're uh, doing so uh, I, I I work with the Pulsar group here at Jodrell Bank and well my main area is uh, trying to find new ways to discover pulsars and fast radio bursts so exciting stuff excellent and Therese what do you do so I work on galaxy clusters and radio galaxies using a couple of different radio telescopes, such as LOFAR in the Netherlands and the Giant Meter Wave Radio Telescope in India. Um, yeah. Excellent. And you're both PhD students? Yeah. Yes. Second year, third Matt, year. and third year, Therese. Unfortunately. Right. Yeah. I see, so the pressure's going to be on soon then. Yeah, yeah. Some I'm just going to pretend I'm still second year. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Let us know how that works that out for you. Past September. <laughs> In the show this time, we interview Professor Frank Close about neutrinos and spies, and Dr Ian MacDonald answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Ben interviews Professor Ralph Spencer about cosmic rays, microwave ovens and interferometry in this month's Job Bite. That was uh, a good interview, actually. We actually took all our recording equipment. We went over to Jodrell Bank, um, so the quality might not be as great because we're not in our comfortable high-tech studio. <laughs> we were sat in Ralph's office. Um, you'll hear the slither of the Manchester to crew trains go uh, going by oh, and yeah. the frolicking of visitor centre oh, um, attendees in the background. Um, so here it is. Our job bite this month is with... Emeritus Professor of Astrophysics, Professor Ralph Spencer. Ralph did his BSc in Physics in Birmingham in 1966. He then moved to do an MSc in Radio Astronomy at Manchester in 1968. He stayed there to do his PhD in Cosmic Ray Air Showers. He's been here pretty much ever since. Ralph, what is it about Jodrell Bank that's kept you here for so long? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, for, first of all, I think it's uh, one of the most beautiful places to work in the world, really. We're out in the countryside. And uh, a beautiful scenery, nice and peaceful. One can get on with things here, which you couldn't do in the city. And so that, to me, has been a major advantage of working here. It's been pretty stimulating, really, on, on the, the work that one can do with... I think um, with being out in the observatory, I think, for me, it's made the uh, difference because you can think about technical things as well as thinking about the... the astronomy and astrophysics so uh, I've always been in, well from a kid interested in electronics and so on and, and being able to apply that and use it for uh, making instruments and so on I've always found fascinating but I've also been keen on the astronomy and the physics 
So I like to make instruments which I can then use to do some astronomy with. So in other words, I like both aspects, the observational side, as it were, and the technical development side. What was it like? I mean, you've been here since, well, 1968, pretty much when pulsars were discovered. What was this site like compared to now, and what was it like to be a student here? It was, uh, I don't think a site was that different. We've got a lot of new buildings, of course, from what we had then. And in those days, we were using all the huts around the green, rather more than we do now. Each individual hut had its own little group, and the group consisted of one or two lecturers and a couple of students, and maybe a postdoc, and that was a, a group. And we had about half a dozen different groups who were working on uh, various aspects of radio astronomy. There were only 11 academic members of staff in those days. Uh, and we just started the new MSc course in 66, it was, um, where there were, again, 11, but there were 11 students. I'd started that and I was one of them. It was very different. Of course, it was all run by Sir Bernard Lovell, who was a great man. Um, he ran the place very tightly. <laughs> you uh, you couldn't do exactly as you liked. On the other hand, <laughs> he did, uh, if you made a case for something, he would back you. Nice. And uh, he would, um, he himself always looked after all the finances for the whole system. And of course, it's only in more recent years that we realised really what a major job that was. And uh, uh, one, when one has to do it oneself until they're getting grants and so on, you realise how difficult a problem it was for him. Uh, but he did it all on, on his own back, really. Mm, we've had it was amazing. So we were free to just get on with research. And yeah. Didn't have to think about finances. Well, we've had some fantastic people here, and of course your PhD supervisor was Professor Sir Francis Smith, Smith, who, Smith yes, yeah. who's still here and, and still in the same research group as you. Uh, yes, more or less. I mean, I, well, I've, <laughs> I... Uh, was given a choice, actually, in 1971 of um, what I would do. Um, I had a careful thought about which of the groups I should join, and one of them was, of course, the Pulsar group, uh, but I joined the uh, interferometry group instead, the Long Baseline Interferometry group, because I felt, uh, cos- well, uh, it was really cosmology and extragalactic radio sources I found more interesting, so I went into that at the time. How did you live as a PhD student here on site? Well, I, I um, of course, was married by then, and so we had a house in in Congleton, and I used to commute by car uh, every day. Still do, so you, <laughs> you change same roads. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, <laughs> so we, we lived away, but we were reasonably sociable. I mean, it was a bit later that we, the accommodation locally was uh, generated. There was a couple of houses that were used by mm. my students, and uh, you know, it seems I've lived locally. When I was first a student right up until I think the 80s, or certainly the late 70s, there was a bus went from Wilmslow every day, and so uh, people used to use the bus regularly, so the staff and students caught the bus, and they would arrive here at 9.30 in the morning and leave here at 6. Right. So our regular working hours were always 9.30 till 6 in those yeah. days, which so suited me. So I've heard some good. horror stories about the dormitories we have here on site that are currently disused. You were never... Uh, yes, I've been. I've used the dormitories in yeah. my time. I mean, I've even used them when it was uh, basically bunk beds in a, a large bunk room. Right. <laughs> and uh, then uh, I've even put up visitors in there, and I actually bought a rug because I know it's so cold. <laughs> 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 okay. So yeah, we we uh, it was. Then were they they were refurbished, and they weren't too bad. Then they were reasonable mm. rooms, uh, but I think 
for anybody to say any length of time. They must have been very brave. Yeah, uh, I think nobody pretty knows isolated. Them now, right? We, I mean, we use them to store some magnetic tapes. Yeah, we store them just for storage. Well, they were condemned by the fire department. Right. Oh, right. I see. Yeah, okay. there, well, not fair enough. enough. Not at this, the rooms are a bit of a fire trap, so ah. uh, for modern standards, so there's no way we could use it. So we sold the furniture and uh, <laughs> found a good home for it. Excellent. Uh, yeah. So your initial research as a as an MSc student was on on cosmic rays and the detection thereof. Yes, that's right. It's using uh, radio techniques to detect uh, cosmic rays. Cosmic rays are highly energetic charged particles that hit the Earth's atmosphere. And they cause a, a cascade of particles. Now, the energy that they're coming at is many, many orders of magnitude higher than even the the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider. Mm. So we're basically involving interactions which, as, as of yet, nobody's experimentally been able to reproduce or even to, to study. So it's, uh, it would, if we could study them properly, push the uh, modern high-energy uh, physics to a higher level. Mm. So that would be quite interesting. But um, what we did was to think of ways of detecting them, because they're quite rare. Uh, it's one at the higher energies of, say, 10 to the 20 electron volts. It's one per square kilometre per century. Right. So they're so very low rate. So you need thousands of square kilometres in order to get a sensible rate of detection for the highest energy ones. So that, Sorry, that's per square kilometre. Per square so kilometre. So if I've got a, a, a square kilometre detector... Yeah. I can expect one count. You've got to wait century. 100 years at least, yes. Wow, so any appreciable amount, you're going to need a detector effectively that's, well, it's huge. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or that's right. technique somehow. That's right. Now, the Auger Array, in, which is the current large area detector, uh, one of them, that's in South America, that is, I think, about 3,000 kilometres. I forget the exact figure. Right. But it's spread over a very large area. The detectors, they don't fill it up with the detector. The detectors are on tanks of water. Mm. where the charged particles go through and there's a flash of light from a thing called Cherenkov radiation, and you can detect that with a photo detector. But you, they're spaced every kilometre or so, so there's a small detector that's mm. spaced out every well, so a few hundred metres to a kilometre. Right. And so you, you might have a thousand of those, and it's spread over a large area. So what actually, I mean, it's a bit of a misnomer, isn't it, to call it a, call it a ray. What actually is a, a cosmic ray? It's a, it's a charged particle. It's a proton, mostly protons, um, perhaps heavier elements, uh, up to iron or something like that. Uh, but they're relatively rarer. Um, mm. They're mostly protons at these high energy. So um, they trigger a cascade in the Earth's atmosphere, and that's a cascade of electrons and muons and other charged particles. And they're the things that can be detected by the particle detector. I see. Uh, but the electrons also have a, they, they tend to bunch up in a thing called the shower front, which is only about a metre or so wide. Um, and so you've got lots of highly energetic electrons moving through the Earth's atmosphere. And it was um, Scarian who thought there may be a charge excess, an excess of electrons over positrons due to interactions with the Earth's atmosphere. And if there is, then this would act like a giant radiator, mm. and we should be able to detect it in radio waves. Right. Waves of wavelength similar to the width of the shower front, that sort of order. And it was John Jelly in Harwell who pushed this idea for using radio techniques back in the 60s, and he encouraged Graham Smith to join in. And when I joined the group here in 66, uh, that work had, had been running for about a year or so. 
and I joined the group to work on detecting the radio emission. And we, we had a small particle detector array, lots of radio aerials of various kinds mm-hmm. in the field. So my first, uh, I was first issued with a, a pair of gum boots, a pair of Wellingtons, <laughs> and gave, given a spade and told to dig some post holes. So uh, that was an introduction to radio astronomy with digging holes in the ground. Excellent. Yeah, I was I was leafing through your thesis last night actually from your from your MSc and, and yeah. it was all nicely hand typed and oh yes hand drawn yeah. diagrams yeah. something yeah. we can't really do anymore now we've got no you're not allowed to do it I, I'm much sooner to do it that way <laughs> <laughs> so um, how are cosmic rays accelerated to these colossal energies ah, good question um, it's uh, the mechanisms are uh, still. The original so-called Fermi mechanism is still the preferred one, I think, where basically you get a, a region containing magnetic field or a, a cloud of gas that moves into the interstellar medium or somewhere. And uh, if you imagine these clouds are moving around and you're a, you're a, a car, the analogy is if you're riding on the motorway and if you're a, you imagine the, a charged particle being your car, and you you do you don't really want to hit things, do you? But if you're travelling on the same lane as other cars, you're all going at the same speed, and the chance of a collision is fairly low. But it doesn't happen. If, on the other hand, you decide to go on the wrong lane, the opposite way, and go against the flow of the traffic, you're going to have a lot of collisions. Yes. So, in other words, overtaking collisions are relatively rare, but head-on collisions are common. So, if you've got these moving gas clouds, you can work out, as Fermi worked out, that a head-on collision will result in a bounce, if you like, or change in the direction of the charged particle and increase its energy. So overtaking collisions lose energy and head-on collisions increase the energy of the charged particle. So by this means, through many collisions, he was able to show that you can produce the, the spectrum of, you know, the, the, the rate at which the cosmic rays come versus energy. You can reproduce that by this technique, this mechanism. Other mechanisms involve shock. And that it's a similar sort of thing, that the shock seems to overtake the particles and they go through the shock a few times and thereby increase in energy. Mm. And yet another one, of course, is in your favourite subject, is in pulsars, where there may well be acceleration mechanisms with close to the pulsar, um, near the pole or whatever, where, where these things are accelerated. So the, the mechanisms are actually a little bit unclear still. I think it's still there are still uh, conferences on accelerating cosmic rays. Their origins are still unclear, in particular mm. at the highest energies. Um, there's some hints that uh, the uh, the higher energies that Centaurus A and other extragalactic objects were the source. The problem is, that being charged particles, they're bent by magnetic fields in the galaxy and in the intergalactic space. So when they arrive, they don't arrive from the original direction. And, mm-hmm. uh, and obviously the higher the energy, the less they're deflected, but nevertheless... It is an issue in trying to find out what their origins are. Right. I've I've read that, well, it, it seems that one of your favourite objects, looking through your publication list, Cygnus X3, is, mm-hmm. a, is a strong source of cosmic rays. Uh, it was mooted to be, yes. I mean, we don't, uh, I, I guess we don't really know. There have been papers suggesting that uh, it is, uh, it's, a, it's an X-ray binary source. It's consisting of a, possibly a black hole with a, uh, and a close, uh, relationship with a surround with a star which almost surrounds it. Um, there is a thick envelope, in other words, around this object, which does affect the radio emission and the optical emission. Uh, it's one of the brightest ones optically, 
and has <coughs> uh, one of them. Is it? No, it isn't. Sorry, it's very faint. I'm sticking at Sigma X, X1. Get them mixed up. Sigma X3 is, is not very bright optically. It uh, can be seen in the infrared, but mm. uh, it does mean it's harder to study than some other objects from that point of view. Uh, it has a very short orbit, only about 4.8 hours. Oh, right. Okay. It was thought at one time you could see that in the radio and in even in gamma rays, but I think that's been disputed since. What are the effects of cosmic rays or their fallout on on the Earth or on sister, are there, is, are there any dangers from impact from cosmic rays? Well, I think we've lived with them for you know several billion years. So, <laughs> uh, you could argue that that's uh, you know the cause of uh, it generates the power of evolution in a sense because if it causes mutations, which it would do over a period of time, that might well result in uh, in the way that evolution has worked. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's also natural radioactivity as well, of course. Mm. So you can argue how do mutations come about, how do changes in populations come about, and I, I suppose cosmic rays could help do that. It's one of those things that may be there. Yeah. They, uh, they're not... In other words, uh, we've lived with them, we're used to them, we know <laughs> our, our bodies and so on have evolved to be able to cope with them mm. and, and live with them. If the intensity were to increase by a large factor then we probably wouldn't. We'd be, we'd start to kill people. You would get radiation. Yes. Damage and disease, of course. So, <coughs> the, um, but the highest energy ones are sufficiently rare that that's not really a problem. You're not likely to be hit by a high energy one. But the low energy, uh, muons, for instance, at lenses of, uh, say 100 MeV or thereabouts, a million electron volts, uh, there's probably about 50 a second going through us. Okay. Um, <laughs> Slightly We're sat here being radiated. <laughs> Similar thing with neutrinos, isn't it? That if you, if and you, neutrinos you, are even more, thumb, of course. If you, the, your thumbnail, which is about a square centimetre, there are several billion of, them, billion of them passing through you every second, regardless of the time of day yeah. um, coming from the sun. Coming back to the idea of detectors and interesting detectors and how we can actually see cosmic rays, I've read that you've been working on using the moon uh, as yeah. a cosmic ray detector. How does that work? Well, <laughs> the interesting thing is, uh, I think it was 10 or 15 years ago, um, some people in, uh, in, I guess in Holland and, and Germany, sort of revived the idea of using radio techniques to detect uh, cosmic rays after it had been dormant for some years. Uh, and with modern techniques, you can now record directly, which we couldn't do in the old days. We had to record everything on film and read it. Now it's all digitised, of course, and you can handle the data better and more accurately. Really, the whole subject is revived, and uh, there is um, now a, a major use for the technique, and, and using things like LOFAR in particular, uh, where not uh, just to study the origins and have a lot, very large collecting area, but you can study the where the <coughs> maximum of the shower is, and this is related to the composition. So it, it's a way of studying the composition of the cosmic rays at energies of around 10 to the 17, 10 to the 18 electron volts. Now, uh, if you want to um, use radio techniques, for instance, to get a bigger area and, and detect the highest energy ones, then uh, you need to spread, obviously, radio aerials over a large area, just like the particle detectors. <coughs> and so it's an advantage. It's not so obvious. The radio uh, cone, as it were, is not so far different from the particle cone in terms of size distribution on the ground, as it turns out. Now, the thought had been expressed some years ago by Dagozhemansky in Russia, that maybe this effect of generating radio emission by charged particles passing through matter could be seen on the moon. And he suggested it. 
And of course, the moon is a quite a large body. And if you can detect the radio pulses from the, the moon here on Earth, then the moon itself is acting like a giant detector. That idea has been pushed forward, and a number of experiments have been done trying to detect the radio emission from the moon, including one that we did here with a couple of uh, MFI students, in fact. We had about half a day on the telescope, that's all. <laughs> but we set an interesting limit, and yeah. uh, it's worth doing. So um, a number of experiments, as I say, have been done, none giving positive detections, because the problem is you're looking for um, these narrow pulses, in a morass of man-made interference. If you if you switch on a light switch, that generates a narrow pulse, which you can see with a sensitive receiver. So there are lots of man-made and other pulses lying around in, in the environment. And it, you need to separate the ones that are actually coming from the moon from ones coming from elsewhere. How easy is that? Pretty difficult. <laughs> um, you have to have... Uh, one thing is to have compare on the moon with off the moon and mm. uh, looking at and other anti-coincidence things that look at other things coming in sideways if you like or off the axis of the telescope so and you have to look carefully at the characteristics of the pulse as well so there are a number of discriminants but it's it's uh, quite difficult and of course the problem only gets worse over time as it started. does it does yeah but the uh we have a proposal in to use the SKA um, because it's got a very large collecting area, it means that you can detect charged particles at lower energies than you can with a single telescope, small telescope. And, of course, it's spread over quite a large area as well, so um, that will give you perhaps an improved chance of, of detecting things. So a number of simulations have been done, and uh, the uh, idea is to look at the limb of the moon. It's not the body of the moon, because the uh, interaction length is only a few metres, so it's only the... The reg in the regolith at the, on the surface of the moon near the limb is where you expect to detect these radio pulses to be generated by charged particles going through the okay. cascade into the rock. So you you look with the um, radio emission, and it's at probably microwave frequencies rather than the very low frequencies we use in the early days because of the it's rock and it's a higher refractive index. So the idea is to put lots and lots of beams all around, around the rim of the moon and compare with the centre of the moon, and compare with off the moon, and that will help immensely because then you can see where, uh, you know, because the interference pulse will occur in more than one beam, just as in fast radio burst research, so we eliminate those. Which brings me on to another thing. Fast radio bursts are fascinating objects, um, but there are other, other events found which occurred in more than one beam of the telescope, as I was saying, it's... Uh, and so they were thought, well, probably not coming from that direction. Perhaps they're local or some sort. Mm. Anyway, there was work by the Australians uh, indicated that it might be due to microwave ovens, which are working in a non-expected way, and because the emission was at frequencies out of the range of microwave ovens, or nominally. Anyway, uh, we saw this paper and decided to do a quick test here at Toronto Bank, where we set up a receiver in front of a microwave oven, and the, the microwave oven's on, and you just open the door. Now, the power goes off as you open the door, but it takes a little while for the voltages to decay inside the, the magnetron that's generating the radio emission. And uh, so it decays from its nominal frequency of 2.4 gigahertz, and it sweeps down in the second or so, down to, say, 1 gigahertz. So while it's sweeping, it mimics these dispersed pulses that one perhaps sees from past radio bursts. So uh, there is an ice pulse that comes out uh, and uh, looks exactly like, well, many of the characteristics, not entirely, because its uh, frequency behaviour is not 
exactly the same. Mm. But it, they do de- shoot across the band in that way. And we saw it on the Spectrum Analyzer and saw it sweep across and thought, amazing. That was the first experiment I've ever set up and done, which worked first time. <laughs> I, I've never ever, <laughs> if anybody's done practical physics, they know you have to work at it to make the darn thing work. And uh, this thing just Give me an idea of, of, of what that setup was. Where were you? Were you outside here with a microwave? No, oven no, we were in the tea room. Uh, our microwave oven here is covered in a large metal box to stop its uh, radiation, normal radiation escaping, because, uh, of course, radio telescopes are very, very sensitive. Mm-hmm. So we were in the tea room, we, and we put a, a a small horn antenna on the table and had the spectrum analyzer set up just a few feet away from the... Uh, and I stood to one side of the microwave oven, opened the door, <laughs> and, uh, and off it went. Uh, so it was very simple, uh, yeah. the way that it was done. We have done a number of further experiments. We deconstructed the microwave oven to see what's inside it. I'm looking at a magnetron from that one right now. It's in the window oh, just here. Yeah, on the windowsill. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> we can see then by looking at circuit diagrams and so on, see how they work and understood what was happening. But we haven't really been able to reproduce these events on the telescope. We tried a little while ago radiating from out in the field mm. into onto the telescope. Uh, but didn't really see the pulses. So hang on, did, did you take a microwave oven out into the field? Yeah, we had microwave ovens out in the huts and fields and right. tried a couple of them. Okay. And uh, to see... What uh, are you cooking anything at the time? Uh, you you, um, you have to load them, so to... you put a cup of water in. Okay. Yeah, otherwise... So lunch as part of the experiment. They, otherwise it wouldn't work very well. So anyway, that was an uh, interesting yeah. little sideline, but it was good. We had a, uh, a master student work on it, and he's probably going to talk about it. I'll give a poster anyway at the meeting coming up. So you think say these were that were potentially mimicking some of the observational properties of fast radio bursts. How yeah. do you separate the two? I think largely it's A does it above the one over F squared uh, dispersion characteristic mm-hmm. is one. Um, does it um, come in more than one beam of the telescope? Uh, things which are in space are localized and compact and should only appear in one beam of a multi-beam telescope. Uh, if they put in more than one beam, it means that it's something which is probably in the near field of the telescope, which microwave organs generally are. Hmm. Uh, near fields mean uh, the telescope no longer acting like uh, you would expect an optical telescope, for instance, to behave. It's very much a property of electromagnetism. Which is, uh, so it's it's sensitive, really, to everything all around it, um, but nowhere near as sensitive as it would be on axis looking in a distant object. You get a gain of a roundabout unity as opposed to a gain of many millions. I mean, I've seen what one of these signatures looks like in in data. Is this mm. just like a little little mark in in? Yeah, it's mark on the plot. You just see a, a um, uh, yeah, and um, it's called a, a periton apparently, which is a mythical a mythical beast. It's a cross between the eagle and the horse. So, I oh, know an eagle and a stag. That's right, and uh, so it's a stag with wings, basically. Yeah. And this is a mythical beast, and somebody coined the name Periton, a bit of inspired thought. And so uh, everyone's got a mythical beast in their kitchen at home. If you've got a microwave oven, you've got a Periton in your kitchen. Yeah, so every time you put something in, you're, you're creating one of these. You have, you, which... if you open the door too quickly, yes. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, this is a radio quiet site, but this isn't a radio quiet area like Greenbank. So there are houses around here. So is, yeah. are we seeing Peritons from people's lunch? We probably are, yes, almost certainly, yeah. And there's no real way we can, we can't really go around everybody's you can't house go around and switching everybody to put off. No. Their microwave ovens in a Faraday cage. No, we we would recommend always that don't 
just open the door when it's still cooking, always finish the cycle, press the stop button, and then it'll it'll die down naturally, and then you open the door. The radiation that comes out is it's not dangerous. It was at a, a few watts. It wasn't at the kilowatts at the. Uh, so it's um, not to be recommended opening the door all of a sudden. So yeah. I definitely. Uh, just let it stop first, always. It is something I think about now. When I open my microwave oven door, when I can see something boiling over, it's like, yeah. periton. I just made a periton. Yeah. It's quite satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, um, you have done a lot of work on instrumentation here at, here yeah. at Jodrell, um, particularly on interferometry and linking telescopes together. Why are many telescopes, many small telescopes, better than one big telescope? Uh, well, uh, it's cost. It'd be very nice to have a very large telescope. The reason is, you need a large telescope to get the resolving power, the, the angular resolution that you would need really to study quite compact objects. I mean, a lot of the things are less than a, something like a half of extragalactic radio sources are less than about two arc seconds in size. So if you wanted to study the, you know, half the sources, then you need something which is, um, got the same sort of resolution as an optical telescope, which would mean a telescope that are typical frequencies of something 100 kilometres across. You can't make anything that large. But what you can do, uh, using interferometry, is put small telescopes spread over that distance and use a, a technique called aperture synthesis to generate the image, finally, and, and the picture of the source that you want to look at. So that's a, a technique uh, which we originally use just in single baseline interferometers, and that's only model fitting to get the structures out. Uh, but to form an image, you need several telescopes. And Merlin came about because we needed to do that. Uh, I guess the Ryle group in Cambridge, Martin Ryle's group, were the first to actually generate images using an interferometer by adding together lots of little telescopes. Uh, but that was only a, over a kilometre or so, perhaps up mm. to a mile. So the um, uh, way to get a higher resolution, as we say, down at these seconds of arc, is to go to 100 kilometres. If you want to do finer than that, then you need transcontinental baselines, as we call it. We need telescopes which are situated thousands of miles apart, mm. situated all over Europe. And we have a thing called the European VLBI, Very Long Baseline Interferometry Network. Uh, VLBI has been done since the late 70s, and it relies on using atomic clocks and high-bandwidth recording systems. So we've used tape for years, and now we're using disks. problem with that technique, you may record data at different telescopes all around the world, but you don't know if it's worked until you try to play all the data back together and... Mm bung it through a supercomputer to find out whether you've got the right data on there or not. And quite often you hadn't because something went, had gone wrong. <laughs> uh, reliability was always an issue. But now we, we uh, push the idea of using real-time VLBI, and, and we I realised uh, well, 15 years ago or so that uh, the internet and the way that the optical fibre links were being used for commercial traffic we're getting to the sort of data rates where we would be interested in what and using them. So, of course, uh, one of the one of the I suppose challenges of doing interferometry in the early days is that you, you whatever you're looking at, the radio waves from whatever you're looking at arrive at each telescope at a different time, and yeah. so you've got to somehow correlate that signal between all the telescopes. And if those uh, data are being recorded at a single station, how are they then correlated in one place? Well, you, you, you nowadays um, we use the internet and they're all correlated at once, but was it a case of post the data to one place? Yes, it was, yes. The, uh, the data was loaded onto aircraft, if you're lucky, or went on a ship and took quite a while to get there. And yes. so it would quite often be six months before you could look at the data. Wow. Before it got there, um, particularly with some dog 
awkward areas. Which is a significant fraction of a PhD project. It's, yes, it is. It's to wait quite a while to wait for your data. Yeah. To find that it hadn't worked. <laughs> and you have to do it again. PhD students always had priority in getting observing time on the system. But it was all well aware of the time lags. And then it would mean, of course, the data would be played back through this correlator, where the delays, as you talk about, the delays of arriving at different times would be compensated for. So all the telescopes would be operating simultaneously, of course. I mean, they all had atomic clocks thinking what the second was. They're all operating exactly the same time. But uh, the radio waves themselves, of course, travel different distances and therefore the delays. And these delays are taken account of in the correlator. They have a delay storage in a digital correlator. It's like storing numbers. You put numbers in the store and take them out again when you need them at the right time. So the, this was all, it's all been done digitally. A special purpose hardware was used for a number of years. Now it's mostly their software correlators. Mm. It's current general purpose computers, PCs, are fast enough to do this sort of work. And of course now our, our Merlin network is now eMerlin. Yeah. And it's it's connected by optical fibre. So it's optical fibre. The, the bandwidths there are, are um, thir- you know, around 30 times what mm. you can get using the general internet and the academic network, for instance. The academic networks, we, we regularly use one gigabit per second, and uh, that's a routine now, and up to two gigabits per second occasionally. And we have done tests at four gigabits per second. So of but course you have... a special link, bandwidth on demand link we have. So you have the resolution of a telescope, which is pretty much as big as the separation between the... Yeah, as big as the Earth, but like, almost. Not necessarily the collecting area, as big no. as the telescope. Yeah. But, um, but the sources are strong enough, there are lots of them to, you can study. Of course, the square kilometre array is pushing the sensitivity up. Square kilometre refers to its uh, collect, total collecting area. Mm. Of its size, it extends over perhaps 100 kilometres or more. Uh, or will do, when they build it. Luckily, heavily involved with designing it now. Oh, Ralph, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for that, Ben. Now, Charlie and Niall interview Professor Frank Close about neutrinos and spies. Today, we're joined by Professor Frank Close from the University of Oxford. Uh, He's a particle physicist. Welcome to Jogcast. Hello. And we're also joined by Niall McCallum, who's a newcomer to Jogcast. So, welcome as well. Hi there. Uh, Frank, you just gave a really interesting talk at the Schuster Colloquium. But before we get into that, could you introduce yourself very quickly and tell us a little bit about your own research? Well, I'm a particle physicist. I'm a theorist. I worked on quarks and gluons, the the seeds of nuclear particles and the strong interactions, for many years. Um, I was uh, head of theory at Rutherford Lab. I spent three years at CERN in charge of the communications and public education because I've always been interested in uh, public education and public awareness of science. And then the last 10 years I've been at uh, Oxford University where I'm now just retired as professor. So I'm emeritus professor, which sounds great. <laughs> and uh, yeah, in addition to all your research, you've, um, you've given lots of public talks. You also gave a Royal Institution talk, a uh, Christmas lecture. Yes, I did. That was 22 years ago. I'm fr- I, just last night, uh, after a talk, I was in Sheffield, and afterwards a teacher came up and said uh, he brought his sixth formers because when he was in the sixth form, he had heard me give the Christmas lectures and decided to take up physics, at which point I felt, A, very old, and B, very humble. You know, that if you realised when you're doing these things that people are actually going to react to them, you probably would freeze. All that time later, yeah. I don't know what to say this, but it was back in 1993, so I was one. Wow. Now I do really feel... <laughs> I'm sorry. I hope you'll edit that, that out. Yeah, we'll cut that out. Yeah, no, that was, just a, that was just a very good thing. 
You've also written a variety of books and published a variety of books, including some short introductions to uh, different areas of physics, vacuums and particle physics. Yeah, one of them was called Nothing. Mm. It was a book about nothing. It's a brief introduction to nothing, yes. I think I read. Yeah, and actually that's probably more fun than it might at first I'd appear, though we did have them produce two volumes with nothing in them, completely blank pages. I've got one at home on my shelves, and somewhere out there is a blank copy waiting for somebody. I think that somebody must have bought it by now, and it shows that some people buy books and never read them because mm. um, there's nothing in it. But it's about the vacuum. You'll Which find is, someone come up and find you and ask yeah. you to sign it one day. <laughs> right. So it's one of only two in existence. But I can't sign it because the moment my signature is in it... It's void. Well, ooh, ooh. that's a... <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, you've written some other books as well. And they all uh, sort of provide an insight into some sort of area of progression of science, the history and what the field's like today. And you were here just giving a talk on your latest book, which is about Italian scientist Bruno Pontecorvo. Yes, uh, I mean, he's known as Mr. Neutrino. I, I think the background to today's talk is um, a book that I wrote called Neutrino, uh, which was about Ray Davis, a man who spent 40 years of his life trying to detect neutrinos coming from the sun. And uh, it took 40 years, and nobody believed that he was going to succeed. And even when he had done it, very few people believed him. Um, but during the course, and he eventually got the Nobel Prize himself, he was 87 in 2002. In 2002. 2002. Mm. Um, but while researching him, I discovered that behind the scenes, Bruno Pontecorvo was always present. And he's actually known as Mr. Neutrino. Uh, he has been widely believed to be the father of neutrino astronomy. Uh, indeed, uh, Ray Davis, in his Nobel speech, recognised that it was a paper that Pontecorvo had written in 1946 that inspired him to the idea the sun could be producing neutrinos. Um, but actually, the researches that I did found that the truth is a bit more complicated than that. We'll probably come back to that in a minute. Um, the thing, certainly, that Pontecorvo did do, there were two things in neutrinos. One, that he is the man who had the insight that there's more than one variety of neutrino, electron neutrino and muon neutrino, that they're different. Um, and in 1960, he came up with an experimental idea as to how to test that hypothesis. The problem was that by then he was in the Soviet Union. Uh, he disappeared through the Iron Curtain in 1950 for reasons which I find fascinating and was really the background to my book. But the fact that he was in the Soviet Union, um, there was no facility there that he could do the experiment at. And they refused him access. They were paranoid in those days. They refused to allow him to leave the Soviet Union to go to CERN, for example, where he could have done the experiment. So he had to write the experiment up. He, he had to write the idea up in Russian. It was published in a Russian journal, and it was about two years before the English translation arrived over in the West. And in the interim, in the States, T.D. Lee, I think it was, had had the basic idea independently, and Steinberger, Schwartz, and Lederman then performed a famous experiment at Brookhaven, which confirmed that there are indeed two varieties of neutrino, and they got the Nobel Prize for that. Mm. So I think it is certainly plausible that Pontecorvo could have been a candidate or even a winner of the Nobel Prize had he not been prevented fulfilling uh, that particular line of research being yeah. in the Soviet Union as he was. The third idea that he had was that supernova were the supernova collapse. The theory, which we now know is true, but the theory was, or 
electrons and protons in a star collapsing together, leaving you neutrons, which leaves a neutron star behind, emitting neutrinos in the process. And Pontecorvo had the insight that if this is correct, there would be that a supernova would shine a hundred times brighter in neutrinos than it does even in light. And, and we know how bright it is in light. In light, I mean, it shines like a whole galaxy. Um, and that these neutrinos would escape and in principle could be detected. And indeed, in 1987, when the supernova in the Magellanic Clouds was detected, um, it was also detected in... It created a blast of neutrinos that had crossed space and time for 180,000 light years or more passed through the Earth, and was some of these were picked up in detectors. And um, one of the uh, experimentalists, Kashiba, uh, shared the Nobel Prize with Ray Davis for that discovery. Pontecorvo sadly died in 1993, so had he survived, I think that he would have probably shared that Nobel Prize with Davis and Kashiba. And finally, um, his other great insight was that these two varieties of neutrino can, thanks to the wonders of quantum mechanics, flip backwards and forwards from one to the other. It's called neutrino oscillations. And this idea, which he had with Griboff, was experimentally demonstrated um, within about the last 10 years ago, and it won the Nobel Prize this year. So um, I think that had he survived to be 102, which is getting a bit fanciful, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, had he been around now, I think he probably would have shared that prize. So this shows that in the world of neutrinos, he was really uh, extremely exciting and influential man having said all that um, i did sort of leave hanging this thing that this popular wisdom that it was Pontecorvo who had the idea that the sun produces neutrinos during my researches into his life i discovered that it actually isn't true that he was working in 1945 just after the war at a nuclear reactor in uh, canada and i think it was the idea that nuclear reactors can produce lots of neutrinos and the fact that his mentor enrico fermi had postulated that neutrinos are produced in such things that put those two ideas together in his head and made him think oh maybe a nuclear reactor is a place to go look for neutrinos and he wrote a paper on how to look for the neutrino which was still a hypothetical particle and this paper was classified uh, they must have thought that oh this is a secret that you know people will out there be able to work out what nuclear power is coming from these power stations by detecting neutrinos, uh, if only. So it was locked up and banged so, away. So it was locked up yeah. and banged away until 1964. I mean, why on earth this paper was classified for all that period? I've no idea. Um, the following year, he wrote another paper. He gave a talk at a conference, which must have slipped through the net and was published. And in that paper, in 46, he mentions the idea of the sun as a source of neutrinos. And that is the paper that everybody knows and is credited, and which I even mentioned in my little neutrino book. Mm. But the 1945 paper, which I've now seen finally in the archives, is just a three pages long. It discusses ways of looking for the neutrino, and there's no mention in it at all of the sun as a source of neutrinos until you get to the very end. And at the end of the paper, it's signed off, Bruno Pontecorvo, and then there's a little addition, note. Dr. Morris Price informs me that the sun could be a source of neutrinos, blah, blah, blah. So it's Morris Price who it's had the idea. Mm. But then the next sentence is, however, the number of neutrinos arriving at Earth is only 10 to the 10 per square centimetre per second, which is too small for the sort of experiment designed here. So Morris Price has suggested the idea, and the two of them had then dismissed it as possible. That's what the original story is. But so, that was so classified. it came about as maybe a, a little whim. And then... Well, I think that what had happened probably... In the confines of the laboratory, this had been discussed by the scientists for the next 12 months or so, and eventually these ideas matured, and Pontecorvo mentioned them at the open conference the following year, and they were then attributed totally to him, whereas mm. in fact the, uh, the provenance is more complicated. 
I think, um, so we sort of take for granted now that the scientific community as a whole is quite unified. But I guess back when Pontecorvo was doing his work, which was between 1930 and about 1980, there was all sorts of stuff going on. He had a very interesting life. Was the sort of academic community split into the West and the Soviet Union? Uh, well, th they were, um, but that was not because they wanted to be. I think that the, the politics made it difficult to know what was going on in the Soviet Union and, and vice versa. Um, but Podikovo's life was certainly very interesting, not least because he grew up at an interesting time. Mm. Um, the world in the 1930s was very different than today, thankfully. Um, fascism was on the rise in Europe, and people had a decision to make. Were they fascist or were they anti-fascist? And intellectuals for the most part, were anti-fascist. Uh, and the Communist Party was the one party that was taking an active move against that. Mm. So many intellectuals in the 30s became communists. The world changed post-war. By 1950, there was this hysteria against communists, especially in the United States with Senator McCarthy. And Oppenheimer, who was in charge of the atomic bomb project, is a classical example of somebody whose 1930s communist beliefs turned round and were used against him and he was almost persecuted for that come the 1950s so ponty was working initially in rome uh, where he made some very important discoveries in nuclear physics in fact the key to what is now a key to nuclear power that when you slow neutrons down before they irradiate material they're much more effective uh, afterwards he then went to paris and worked with uh, joliot and irene curie who had just won the nobel prize and uh, then of course the nazis invaded uh, france and ponty was an italian in france which meant he was on the enemy side he was also from a jewish background which meant he was no friend of the nazis either and so he had to flee so he had enemies to the left and right absolutely and he and his family escaped to North America where he became an oil prospector. And that might sound a bit odd, but actually he brought nuclear physics to the oil industry by lowering a, a radioactive source that emitted neutrons down a borehole. The neutrons then irradiate the surrounding rocks and induce activity in them. And then by recording the activity and decoding it, you can work out what the rock strata are. And this method was able to distinguish oil-bearing shales from other rock forms. And it was also used to distinguish uranium. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And he then was uh, part of the Manhattan, on the periphery of the Manhattan Project, working at this nuclear reactor in Canada. And indeed, uh, uranium deposits in Canada were found not least by using this technique that Pontecorvo himself had designed. He then, after the war, came back to uh, Harwell in England, which was building the first nuclear reactor in the West. And then his colleague Klaus Fuchs was arrested for spying in 1950 in February. Pontecorvo himself was a member of the Communist Party, and with the communist anti-communist hysteria, he then began to get a bit nervous. And he told the authorities that he had relatives who were communists, so the authorities decided to sort of um, quarantine him from classified research, if you like. He was mm. going to move to the University of Liverpool, where he could be a consultant, but would not be actively involved in the classified work. Um, but then, at the end of his summer holiday, disappeared through the Iron Curtain. Disappeared off the face of the earth for five years. Nobody knew where he was. And then he resurfaced five years later. Giving this conference that we discussed earlier. Yes, that's right. So his defection in 1950, do you think that that came about due to his unhappiness about being moved off classified information, the research that he was obviously so passionate about, and, well, the advent of the atomic age had pretty much consumed his entire research life? Or was it more of a coercion? I think a bit of both. Um, you have to realise that at the political side, he was a communist in an era of anti-communist hysteria, 
which was not comfortable. He was being moved from classified research. It is possible that he was made aware of greater opportunities, that the Soviets were building this new laboratory at Dubna, which would have been, at that time, the most powerful accelerator around. This is before the time of CERN. And that may have been an attraction to him. He may have got wind of that through some contacts. Um, but I'm also aware of the fact that uh, there was some information passed to the Soviets from Chalk River, the lab that he was working at. This is not to say that he passed it. Somebody who's not been identified passed it. Um, there are indirect hints that uh, he had association with uh, uh, somebody who couriered information from there. Um, I'm pretty sure, well, I know from a document that we found in the archives that uh, he almost certainly became aware of the fact that the FBI, for some reason, were interested in him and communist associations. And I think perhaps through the role of the infamous Kin Philby, who got wind of this, he became aware of this while he was on holiday. And so instead of returning home, they disappeared. We found the airline manifests, which showed that he and the family went to the Soviet Union together, um, and they only took 60 kilograms of luggage with them in 10 cases that's six kilograms a case that's carry-on baggage it's camping gear which is what you went to do on holiday so which you take on holiday if you're going to spend the rest of your life in the soviet union your wife at least takes her fur coat with her which they found later at her house absolutely yes <laughs> so yeah this is a fascinating story and um how how did you go about your research is it still a sensitive topic um, to this day well interesting that yes in that the hydrogen bomb uh, is still classified surprisingly um and I was surprised because some of the things that Pontecorvo was aware of would have had interest to hydrogen bomb. And yet, in all of the inquiries that took place after he left, surprisingly, they covered everything, but not anything at all to do with hydrogen bomb. So I suspect that those papers have been withheld. It's they not that they redacted. just goofed and overlooked it. Mm. Um, so that, that is clear. How I did it? Well, in part, I'd always been interested in him as a scientist. I knew of him as a scientist. And I set out initially to write a biography of him as a scientist. And I then became aware that had he not gone to the Soviet Union, his career would have been even greater than it was. And as I said, he probably would have won a Nobel Prize, which he was prevented by him being there. So the question then was, so why did he go? And that mm. became increasingly fascinating to me. And that I think I found the answers to. And at the end of it, I started off writing the book as a scientist. And it's ended up being on the shelves of military history in some of the <laughs> bookstores, which is rather That's unusual. Almost, it almost comes across as a thriller. It is, actually. Uh, one of the reviews said it has a Le Carre-esque cast of characters. And... Uh, Yes, it, it is a thriller. I, uh, I I read it through and I think, well, is there any science in this? And actually, yes, there is. I mean, I, I deliberately had had a, a couple of chapters devoted specifically to his science, not least the fact that uh, thanks to his son, who was two years old when Bruno fled the Nazis and 12 years old when they disappeared with the Iron Curtain, he's a retired nuclear physicist. In, who you've contacted. Who I've contacted in Dubna. He managed to get hold of the logbooks, um, which show that during that first five years, in uh, Dubna, he had some very seminal ideas, which he never really got fully credited for. The concept of associated production, which is um, when cosmic rays hit the atmosphere, they produce what's called strange particles in a very odd way. That's why they're called strange. And Ponty had the insight that they were produced in pairs. This is called associated production. Um, this idea is traditionally attributed to Gelman and Pice over here in the West. But looking at their logbooks, I think Ponty had that idea independently about six months before them. 
The concept of strangeness, which is the important feature, which it spawned, however, he didn't have. He didn't understand that particular aspect. So I think we're going too far to say that he should have been credited with strangeness. But the idea of associated production, he certainly had. And there were some other insights that he had as well, um, which, being in the Soviet Union, he never really got credit for. And also being classified and, and hidden for some period of time never came to light. It is really interesting that he may have, part of the reason that he may have left for the Soviet Union is to take advantage of the state-of-the-art technology they're developing. But then, due to him going, he may have been limited in other ways, which has prevented... Yes, I think that is the great irony. I mean, Mm. there's an enigma. Uh, What he said to an interviewer just shortly before his death was that he refused an interview on the grounds that I want to be remembered as a great physicist, not as your f***ing spy. That's literally what he said. And depending on how he intoned that, it's an admission that he spied... Mm. and that really he wanted to be known as the great physicist and that he had been messed up because of that or he was fed up with being accused of spying when in fact he was nothing other than the great physicist and of course that we will never know but it's so it's a great irony however it turns out that if he was indeed totally innocent of espionage and went out there uh, for personal reasons uh, for the belief that perhaps he could do better physics in the soviet union well, of course, we ne- we'll never know mm. what would have happened had he been over here. Uh, ideas don't just come automatically. They come out of conversations, and you may have had different conversations. Uh, so that we will never know. But certainly the life that he had was certainly a disaster for his wife, without mm. any doubt. And I think his science did overall. He didn't get the credit probably that he might have done. And was he ever reconciled with his family after all of this, many years later? Many years later, well, he never saw his parents again, and his wife never saw her parents again. That was part of the tragedies of the things. As you mentioned in your talk, his wife had a breakdown. Yes, he did. About 28 years later, finally, he was allowed to leave the Soviet Union and make contact with with family again. Mm. So uh, overall, I think it was a, it's a tragic story. It's a tragic but fascinating story. Uh, thank you very much for talking to Not us today. If you want to get it for Christmas, it's Half-Life. <laughs> I'm tempted brilliant. to get it for my dad. Yeah. <laughs> right, thank you. thank you. Thanks. Thanks for that. So did he buy a book? He did buy the book, yeah. Um, he, uh, we've got it here, actually. Um, did he? he bought the book for oh, his dad. It's a looking book. Um, and it, yeah, it's uh, Frank Close, Half-Life, The Divided Life of uh, Bruno Pontecorvo, Physicist or Spy. Um, and I've been trying to leaf through this without sort of making it look like it's been opened. Because, <laughs> um, it's, I've been sort of keeping it safe on my desk so Charlie's dad doesn't have to open up a obviously opened and read book. Like uh, but it looks like an interesting read. So there we go. Okay, um, so we've got a few little bits of admin to go through. We finally have a date set for Jodcast Live. Uh, we'll be celebrating our 10th birthday in January, but we'll be actually doing the real celebrations in February. We'll be having a live episode of the Jodcast being recorded at Jodrell Bank Observatory on the 28th of February. We figure that after 10 years, um, an offset of a month probably isn't too bad. Yeah, within, uh, like, approximately... Exactly. Ten years plus one month month compared to the age of the universe. Well, exactly, (laughs) exactly. Um, So we'll be uh, keeping you posted about how to actually get a ticket to this. Um, We're hoping it's going to be a good show. We've got lots of good ideas. um, And we're hoping to get some T-shirts and a cake. What kind of cake will it be shaped like? It'll be like a lovel. We hope it'll be shaped like the Jodcast star with the Jodcast Ooh, at ten. Very nine. nice. But we're, we're trying to get money to pay for these things, so we'll uh, we'll see if we can we'll manage that. Um, but yeah, the twenty eighth February, Jodrell Bank Observatory. Mark the dates in your calendars, and we'll be in touch uh, very soon with all our listeners to let you know how you can go about getting a ticket to come along. 
And now we move on to the part of the show where we talk about all of the things that we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. Therese, why don't you go first? So I've been reading some papers this week, as you do. And, um, no, we don't. <laughs> so I found one paper that looked really... It's a nice short paper, but it was just on um, some simulations of some active galactic nuclei, or AGN. So these are... Um, these are very powerful objects. They're supermassive black holes, and they, they're they very, very bright in things like the X-ray, or the ones in, that were being simulated in this paper were um, very bright in the radio. And so for um, radio galaxies, for radio bright AGN, they come in two types of morphologies, FR1 and FR2. So FR1s, they, um, they have very bright jets coming out, these columns of bright radio material coming out, uh, from from either end, and then they have some, they kind of whiffle off, you get a bit of lobe structure. Mm-hmm. For F42s, uh, these are much more powerful, the jets are much faster, so the jets aren't as bright, they're they're relativistic, you sometimes don't even see one of them because you get um, relativistic effects coming into play, and then their lobes are really bright because they smash really, really, really fast, they just smash into their surrounding material, and so you get a lot of bright, uh, energetic stuff happening at those points of contact. Like Cygnus A. Like Cygnus A, exactly, yeah. Oh, you, yeah, you can Google these and you'll get beautiful images. Um, so this particular paper was trying to simulate uh, different types of AGN to see if they could reproduce the different morpho- morphologies. So they include things like um, the magnetic field. So they start off with the, the, the black hole and they just have a sphere of magnetic field and then they start spinning it. And so you get kind of like a, a slinky magnetic field coming off, like a helical magnetic field. And so they, they simulate it and they actually do manage to, to reproduce the morphology of the AGN. And that normally, a lot of the times, people can re- reproduce one or the other using their simulations. These people, they manage to reproduce both wow. using self-consistent uh, jet launching and magnetic fields in the jets. And uh, one of my favorite parts of the paper, though, is they have a YouTube link in the paper because they put their simulations on YouTube. So we'll, we'll put a link on the website, but you'll be able to, to actually watch from start to finish three of their simulations to, to make the, the jets and... And I really liked it because you could actually see the formation of the different structures. Wow. Um, yeah. That's so, really cool. So is there a clear cutoff then between FR1 and FR2? So there is a power cutoff. It's it's not it's not super, super clear um, because it is still affected, I think, by things like the density because you get an instability in the magnetic field uh, that causes the the differing the differing morphology. But um, sure. yeah, so there's a power cutoff. So... F41s are low power um and F42s are higher powers but yeah so there's a there's definitely a cutoff excellent well, that'll be interesting to see we will put a link to that in the show notes matt well i've got something a bit closer to our neighborhood ceres yes it's been in the news for for quite a few months now i think for at least 3 4 months we have bright spots in the series, and we don't know what they really are. And at least now we might know wh- uh, what they, what they really, where they really come from. So the ideas range from water. That, w- that was our first guess. Well, we have water on 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 series. In what phase? Um, ice, presumably. Well, yes, ice, ice. That that would that would be uh, the best explanation. Uh, from comments on 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 the internet, or I think the 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 most favourite explanation was, of course, aliens. <laughs> it's always aliens. Like <laughs> like everywhere, uh, photosynthesis. But now there's been a paper released that 
the bright spots may actually be caused by salts. Oh. Not ordinary uh, kitchen salt, but uh, hydrated magnesium sulfates. Yes, so there's been a paper published in Nature quite recently on the 9th of December. That's when it's been published online. So if you have access, uh, I, I encourage everyone to, to have a look at it. Uh, yes, so the scientists try to explain these bright spots uh, by by just hydrated magnesium sulfate and they've used a range of observations and they say well it's 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 consistent uh but however they they say that contrary to people who are who definitely know these are aliens they say well there still might be a bit of a room to say well whether it's just salt whether it's mixture of salt and water because it'll be quite an exciting thing to mm. to find water there because that's one of the main things we i think looking for in the universe and in our solar system so not everything is lost there still might be water there for now we think it's 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 salt fantastic but not photosynthesis <laughs> Not photosynthesis, no. Oh, uh, so it's big enough any to hold on to... Luminance. So he's, so he's couldn't really hold on to an atmosphere, could it? <sighs> no, and, uh, well, I think the biggest problem would be Jupiter and radiation from the Jupiter. Because mm. uh, it's it's quite a massive planet, and we know that it, it has a quite a strong magnetic field. And tidal forces as well, I don't think it's... it's a, well. I'm not here to say that we can't have any any life anywhere else in the universe, but I don't think actually this uh, this object is 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 going to be uh, too habitable for to because to, it's too close to our massive giant planet that that can disrupt too many things. Quite. Yes, unfortunately. See, so there is life elsewhere in the solar system. There are better candidates for. Yeah, I think definitely. we have better candidates like Mars or Enceladus and Enceladus, oh, yes, Europa, yeah. even Titan. Maybe mm. I don't know. Uh, if you're looking for something that is not a water-based, but maybe not um, here. Yeah. Well, staying just inside the solar system, astronomers using the Subaru. 8-metre telescope in Hawaii have discovered what might be a large planet on the edge of the solar system. Um, the object has been designated V774104, um, and it lies towards the um, Alpha Centauri system. Um, they found it by... They, they were looking at the Alpha Centauri system, and they noticed a bright, fast object moving across their field of view. Um, so this rules out the idea that it is a, a star along the line of sight because a, a star just wouldn't move that quickly. Um, I don't think there are many stars that have a proper motion that's quite that big. Um, but based on its spectral signature, they believe it to be a trans-Neptunian object orbiting roughly 100 AU from the Sun, which is about three times the distance of Pluto. Um, from its brightness, they estimate its size to be around 500 kilometres, um, which is about ha uh, less than half of Pluto's size. But there is an asymmetric error bar on that. It could actually be double that size. They've only just found it. They haven't really done all that many observations of it, um, and so it's going to take a few more before we get an idea of any more of its properties. It'll be likely up to a year before we can determine exactly what its orbit is. We've, as I said, we've only had a few observations, um, and it takes a few to determine uh, an object's trajectory around the sun. Um, but it's also not entirely clear how such an object came to be where it is. Um, 
This uh, and another distant object out there, Sedna, may be part of what's called the inner Oort cloud, which is like a spherical shell of icy bodies uh, that surrounds the solar system at about 2000 AU. Um, and it's thought to be where long period comets uh, might come from. Um, so although it's uh, uh, V774104 is at about 103 AU, we don't know its orbit. It could have an extremely eccentric orbit and we could be looking at it while it's in the inner part of its orbit. It may well extend further out into the Oort cloud later in its orbit and come back. Um, we don't know that yet, but it's going to be interesting to know what this turns out to be. Um, it's going to give us a, a, a huge amount more information about solar system dynamics and planet formation because um, this object shouldn't be there. What happened to the news that it was a super Earth? Because last time I read the internet, it was apparently 2012, three years later, and there was a massive super Earth approaching us. Uh, so, and now you tell me it's only 500 kilometers. So, another disappointment. So, no aliens on the series, no super Earth <laughs> coming our way. It's just a month full of disappointments. Well, we can call this one Planet X until we know more about it. Everything gets called Planet... Pluto was Planet Apparently, X. Apparently some astronomers are really unhappy that it's been called Planet X now. Tough. There has been some <laughs> stuff going on Twitter, some mm. things being thrown that we shouldn't jump on the Planet X bandwagon. Can we call it Planet Y? There it is, Planet yeah, Y. Yeah, okay, Planet <laughs> Y, yeah. Um, but yeah I mean, plenty it, of other good letters in the alphabet. The error bar on the 500 kilometres is, mm. is double the 500 kilometres, yeah. so it's not going to be a super-Earth, but whatever it yeah. is, for, it's interesting anyway. For reference, how far out are um, Ceres and Pluto? Pluto is, uh, I think, maybe 30 AU. Okay, so it's significantly Ceres further out then. Is Matt's looking it up. I'm looking it up, yes. Yeah. 2.97 AU. That's uphelion. Perihelion is 2.5577 AU. So this is significantly further out than, than all the other kind of dwarf planets we tend to see. Yeah. And, of course, we, we can't really say what it is. Anyway, it may well mm. be a dwarf planet. It may well be a planet. I mean, we, it depends whether... It, I mean, the th three things that determine whether something is classified as a planet has to be in an independent orbit around the mm -hmm. sun, has to be massive enough to have pulled itself into a sphere, and it has, has to have swept its orbit clear of any material. We, of course, can't say anything about the third one of those. Yeah. Um, and so it may well end up being the ninth planet in the solar system. Interesting. And now on to someone whose spectral signature is known very well indeed. Dr Ian MacDonald answers your questions in Ask an Astronomer. This month's astronomer is Dr Ian MacDonald. Our first question is, has any of the spacecraft leaving the solar system, Pioneer 10 and 11, Voyager 1 and 2, unwittingly passed near a Kuiper Belt object? Well, it depends on what you mean by near. Space is pretty empty after all. We don't really have a good idea of what the density of Kuiper Belt objects is. Originally, when the Pioneer spacecraft passed through the asteroid belt, there was quite a lot of concern that it was going to be so dense that any spacecraft might have been hit by at least a very small asteroid, maybe about the size of a grain of sand or more, which would have wreaked havoc with all the instrumentation on board. And like the asteroid belt in the 1970s, we've got very little idea of how many Kuiper belt objects are out there today. I could only find one measurement that's been published back in 2009, and that suggests that the Kuiper Belt objects, larger than about 250 metres or so, are probably spaced from the nearest neighbours by about 1.5 million kilometres, give or take. So the closest that any of the spacecraft is likely to have got to them is about 15,000 kilometres, so considerably closer than the distance between the Earth and the Moon. And this might seem really close in space terms, but what would they actually see? Now, the Voyager cameras are turned off to save power, but they've got about the same spatial resolution as the human eye. 
Each pixel is about 14 arc seconds across, and at that distance you'd need to have an object that's over about a kilometre across to make out anything more than a point. Kuiper Belt objects are intrinsically very dark as well, and the sun's very feeble at that distance, which means that you're not going to see very much. And that combination means that the chance of seeing anything worth the entire effort of reprogramming from scratch the Voyager cameras to look at them is quite slim. So in cosmic terms, all four probes have probably been quite reasonably close to some unidentified lump of Kuiper Belt rubble, but probably not close enough to be interesting. Okay, thank you. A second question is from another Ian, who asks... Please can you explain to me the curvature of the Earth? I am trying to understand at what level of curvature the Earth is over certain distances. I do not understand the maths used to determine this, and wondered if you could clarify. Well, we're all familiar with the curvature of the Earth at some level. Even if you go down to the line of the beach and look at the shoreline, you'll only see the waves rolling in immediately in front of you, and you'll probably get a wet face. But if you climb up above the beach, you'll start seeing things further away. Ships, coastlines, etc., and if you jump into an aeroplane, you'll see much further. If you go into Earth orbit, even further still. And by the time you reach the Moon, you'll be seeing about half of the Earth. Now, how far away your horizon lies depends on the height above ground you are. And if you are interested in the maths behind this, the Wikipedia page on the horizon gives some good examples. The distance to your horizon also depends on the local topography and atmospheric refraction. But in the best physics tradition, for now we'll assume that the Earth is some beautifully polished sphere with no mass and no atmosphere. And if you're tethered to this mythical object with your spacesuit on, you can calculate how far you can see around this unusual object as follows. If you take the radius of the Earth in metres, multiply it by your height above the surface in metres, double this number and take its square root. That answer will be approximately the distance to your horizon in metres. And if you're a fairly average height, you'll find your horizon to be a little under 5 kilometres, or 3 miles away. Now, it's often said that you can see ships disappearing over the horizon like this, but from these sorts of altitudes, the effect of atmospheric refraction is much stronger. Differences in the temperature of the air causes the light to bend, making things appear below the horizon when they shouldn't be, and allowing you to see things beyond the horizon that you wouldn't expect to. And in certain conditions, these can lead to some spectacular mirages. But let's go back to our beach in something close to the real world on a much calmer day. And if you climb up your local lighthouse, you might find that your horizon has increased from about 5 kilometres to about 20 kilometres, or 12 miles. And if you climb up your typical local hill, you'll find it's even further, maybe about 50 kilometres or 30 miles. And if you climb up something like Mauna Kea in Hawaii, which I've been fortunate enough to do, you can watch the sunset from behind the ocean that's about 230 kilometres, or about 145 miles away. There's only a handful of sightlines in the world where you can see further over the ocean than this, and certainly not in almost every direction at the same time. So if you're in Hawaii, I'd recommend it. It's not hard to find other places on Earth where you can see more than 150 miles or more, but usually this is because you're looking from one mountain top to another, while the rest of that mountain is below the horizon, and I think this is cheating a little bit. I had a look for the longest photograph distances I could come up with, and that's a pair of mountains that's spaced by about 240 miles in Alaska. And you really have to squint in these photos to see them. The longest theoretical distance I could come across was about 300 miles in Columbia, but I don't think anyone's managed to see it, never mind photograph it. Of course, things are a lot easier if you go up in an aeroplane. Cruising at 40,000 feet, your horizon might be stretched out to maybe 400 kilometres or 250 miles. Although by now you're typically looking through so much scattered light that the horizon itself is normally invisible. 
Even Felix Baumgartner, jumping out of his balloon, only saw a horizon that was about 700 kilometres away. Now, astronauts in the International Space Station have things a little bit better, but even in low Earth orbit, you can only see to about 2,300 kilometres away, and that's about 1,400 miles. To really see the whole Earth, you have to travel far above it, and only 24 people in the whole of human civilization have ever done that. Thank you. Our final question is from Sean Mulcahy. He asks, what's the first object in the night sky you can see with the naked eye? At least we hope that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Sean. Well, there's a simple and quite easy and definitive answer for this one. It's the Andromeda Galaxy, and it's also known as M31. It's about 780 kiloparsecs away, which means the light we see from it left it around 2.5 million years ago. And you can see this with the naked eye under fairly reasonable conditions. I can see it from my slightly light-polluted townhouse in a good night. Now, there's a handful of more distant galaxies that are theoretically visible, but they would require absolutely perfect conditions, a very experienced eye, and eyesight much better than average to see them. Generally, they're not credited as being visible. But at various points in human history, someone has seen a supernova go off in one of these galaxies, or a more distant galaxy. These are very rare. The last time this happened was in 2008, and most people wouldn't be able to find it anyway. But it did get me wondering, what if the Andromeda galaxy isn't above the horizon? What's the second furthest thing you can see? Well, for those in the Southern Hemisphere, the furthest thing you'll be able to see are the two Magellanic Clouds, which are about 150 and 200,000 light years away. So considerably closer than the Andromeda Galaxy. And the Andromeda Galaxy and the Magellanic Clouds represent the only naked eye objects that we can properly see outside our galaxy. Everything else we see belongs in the Milky Way. And when you look at the Milky Way in the night sky, particularly if you live far enough south to get a good view of the constellation Sagittarius, what you're looking at is the light of millions, billions of stars, which lie at a range of distances. And many of these will be near the centre of the Milky Way, 25,000 light years away. But if you can't see that far south, the globular cluster M13 is at about the same distance. If you want to consider the furthest individual stars, you might want to look on the other side of the night sky from M13. Of the few thousand stars visible to the naked eye, some of the most distant are the supergiants Rho Cassiopeiae, and Mu and Nu Cephei. These are all between 6,000 and 8,000 light years away. And if you're in the north and your skies are clear, you might be able to see them tonight. Okay, thank you very much, Ian. Thanks for that, James and Ian. <laughs> and now on to the feedback. Matt, do we have any post? Yes, we do. This month we received a beautiful Christmas card, actually printed designed and sold on behalf of the British Astronomical Association and we have uh, beautiful igloos with some telescopes sticking out of it. So this postcard was sent to us by Bill Scutcher and he wishes us, uh, well, best season's greeting and all good wishes for the new year. Keep up the good work. All the best to everyone at the Jotcast. Thank you very much, Bill, and we also wish you very good Christmas and, and Happy New Year. Yes, and keep those cards coming in. We want more Yes, more. exactly. <laughs> we want more Christmas cards. Yes, Christmas cards are good. We've also had an email from John Murrell. Um, you may remember from last episode we talked about a piece of uh, space debris that came crashing into the sea and was found near the Isles of Scilly. And Fiona mentioned that it might be uh, possible to do um, some kind of dating on when this thing ended up in the sea by looking at the distribution of barnacles on on the uh, on the piece of debris. Um, well, John Murrell writes in saying, 
Uh, in your commentary in The Odds and Ends, um, you suggested that given suitable research, the time the rocket part had been in the sea could be determined. There is no need for new research. This technique is already used, for instance, to track where the part of the ill-fated flight MH370 found on Reunion had been. So thanks for clarifying that for us, John. C- can I just say, like, I, I think I've got the easiest solution to just ask Elon Musk where this piece came from because I believe it's SpaceX so so they should know where when when so there would be no need to determine where it came from and when when it landed or, or where well there we go <laughs> just ask Ellen <laughs> <laughs> I will do that right now it's got him on speed dial <laughs> <laughs> maybe he listens to Jotcast <laughs> so we've nothing for Facebook but thanks for all the likes and shares we would like to thank you as well for all the follows and retweets on Twitter. You can find us on iTunes. Please rate and review us. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. And on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. Thanks to Professors Frank Close and Ralph Spencer for the interviews. The editors were Alex Clark, Niall McCallum, Benjamin Shaw and Charlie Walker. The producer was Benjamin Shaw. Until next time... Jodom! The heat is on in a strange house made of academic papers. Gretel, NDPO and RGOD2 are pinned against a wall whilst Hansel is being dangled over a blazing stove. Any last words, boy? Um, yes. You never told me what the question was that Tim O'Brien couldn't answer. Then you shall take your place in my experiments, not knowing. Oh dear, what can we do? I'm a princess. <sighs> what was that? I'm a fairy princess. Hansel found himself on the floor, the man in the cloak distracted. <sighs> you? You are a princess? I am a fairy princess. <sighs> I've always wanted to be a fairy princess. Tell me about it, small droid. I'm a lovely fairy princess. Quick, Hansel, throw something in the stove's exhaust vent. Good idea, Mr. Scrattle. The vent is the weak spot for the whole stove. Go for the vent, Hansel. Use the force, Hansel. Why should I? This is a house made of academic papers. Wait! What have you done? What have you done? Come on, Indipio. Come on, Argo. Let's get out of here. Right away, mistress. I'm a princess. I only want to be a fairy princess. And so our heroes survived. Upon returning home, they found their father waiting for them. Dad, it's so good to see you. Even though you left us in the forest to rot, why'd you do it? And is our evil stepmother still here? I can't see her. See, you cannot. 
The dark side of your vision clouds. Oh, come on, Dad, what happened? If into the security recordings you go, only pain you will find. There, I found this for you. This is entirely the wrong fandom for me. Misa back! What's all you doing? Returned, she has. I think we should go and get ourselves lost in the forest again. I agree. Coming, Indy? Argo? Oh, I think so, Mistress Gretel. Absolutely. Wait! Stay here, you must! Please! Oh, Miss Ayota, you'll be fine. Please stay! Hmm? No way! You married it, Dad! <laughs>